Well, my wife and I were married for a, almost a year, and we were living in an apartment on the kind of central west side of Houston. I was a youth pastor, and so we would commute into memorial area, and we lived in an apartment, and after you live in an apartment, at least for a little while, you're like, man, I'm just throwing money away, and we got to that place, and we're about nine months into marriage, and there's this guy at our church. He was the guy that would take the students on the mission trip, and he was the head of the construction project. He was like MacGyver. If, if that dates me, I'm sorry, but he could do everything. He was in uh, real estate for about 20 years, but he was also in construction, so he was just this guy uh, at our church who could do all things. He would show up to people's homes and break open the trunk of his car and just have whatever you needed there to fix whatever you need fixing. And one of the things he liked to do for pastors on staff was to help them get in, get in their first home. And he always was trying to get people to buy fixer-uppers so that he could help them and invest some equity into a home as they fixed it up. We knew nothing about home ownership. We were green. And so Bill Perlmutter, great man, passed a few years ago. Bill helped us find our first home. And we'd go around to homes. I think we went around to 20 or 30 homes. And Bill was like, not this one. And we were looking at most of these homes going, man, this thing is run down. Like, I don't know how I'm going to fix this. I'm terrible with plumbing and electrical. My dad wouldn't even use me when I was a kid for those things. He would just tell me to dig post holes. And so it wasn't very useful. And yet we found this house and Bill liked it. And then we started thinking about how we could fix it up. We made an offer on this house. Bill made us lowball these people, this older couple, like moving out of the house into a retirement community. And so we made an offer on this house, and we were in the kind of in-between on inspection, and Melanie's mom and dad came to visit us, and we're stoked. Like, we're excited about this new house that we're going to purchase and fix up, even though we have no idea how we're going to do it, but Bill knew. And so, Melanie takes her mom by this house one day when they're in town, and it just so happened that that day, there was an estate sale at the house, and they're like, hey, let's go in. I want to show you our soon-to-be home. And they go into this estate sale and look around, and Melanie's so excited. She's telling her mom all the things that we're going to do to this old house. And her mom just has, according to my wife, just has these big eyes, and she hasn't said a word and they leave, and only in a way that Diane Mangum can do, my wife asked her mom, hey, what do you think about our new home? And Diane said, well, it's sturdy. <laughs> she wasn't wrong, y'all. I got a few pictures of this house, like the first week when, after we bought it. All right, that is the kitchen. All right, this is 2003. Okay, next picture. This is not 1970, okay? Look at that wallpaper. Look at that, yeah, Kelvinator. I'm telling you, no lie, after we bought the house, that's a, like 1970 top-of-the-line Kelvinator. No lie, I called, I tried to call somebody off of Google that might want to use it in movies or something because it was that old. That's what we were, that's just the kitchen. That's what we were walking into and my mother-in-law was right. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. We had to spend lots and lots of time renovating this house, but we were excited to do so. 
Anybody like projects? Anybody like fixer-uppers? Maybe it's old furniture. You like to strip down and make new, maybe to its original design, or maybe something more updated. Anybody like to update cars, take an old, broken-down car and fix it up? Maybe it's a garden, maybe it's interior design or a home, like the whole thing. But there's something in us that enjoys, many of us, that enjoys seeing old, broken down, dilapidated things and fixing them up and seeing them transformed and renovated and reclaimed and made new. Did you know that God does this as well? God does this with you and I, and Ephesians, the book we've been studying, Ephesians 2, is really just that. It's God showing us that we are his restoration project. Remember last week, we looked at how God brought us from a place of spiritual death, like no spiritual life, and made us alive. He's restoring. He makes us alive, and then he sets us on a path, and we are like this we said last week, like this old, thrown-away, tossed-away paint, an old, beat-up canvas that he takes, and he paints this beautiful work of art. We are his workmanship, we said, and he's prepared good works for us. He makes us new, and he sets us on a path. He's restoring us to Jesus, first of all, that we are made new, and then he continues as we live out the life of Christ continues to mold us more and more into the image of Christ. And it's a lifelong process in which he engages believers on. And let me ask you if, you, if you looked at your own life and you just pictured your own life as a house, if you can imagine that, what do you see? Do you see any chinks in the shingles outside from the elements of the outside world, from the winds and the rain, any damage to your home from within, either because of neglect or misuse on your part, any rooms that need renovation or repair? And then what work can you do in that process? And what work requires someone else? I know in my life I can think of my house or my, my life as a house, and there are plenty of work to do in it. How about you? See, God is in the business of restoring, and oftentimes we need to give him the restoration of our lives that we're trying so hard to keep in ourselves. He's the builder. He's the creator. And so this morning, Ephesians 2, we are his restoration project. Look at it with me. Turn there. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, page 976 on the Bible near you if you need it. What we're going to see this morning is that the work of the cross not only brings us from death to life, gives us gifts of grace, and not only sets us on a path of good works because we are his workmanship, but the work of the cross is also this week going to show us what he's done and what he's doing and what he's going to do, not just in our individual lives. Man, we are Westerners, and when I'm speaking right now, you're thinking about your own life, rightfully so, but what is he building beyond you? using you, but what is he building? Jesus, see, Jesus is building his church. 
his household, his temple, his body. That's what he's doing. This is the restoration project. It's not just you. It's not less than you, but it's more than you. Check this out. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Let me read this passage for us. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles were in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having, check this out, no hope. You were without God in this world, but now. It's a great contrast like last week. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. What a great verse. For he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. By killing the hostility, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to also those who were near. For through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer what you were in verse 13, strangers and aliens, but you are Fellow citizens, that's identity, with the saints, members of the household of God. Look at these metaphors for the church. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit, look back at verses 1 through 13. 1 through 13, your first thought this morning is this. Capture this. The cross moves us from outsiders to insiders. Do you see it? He's speaking, think about Ephesus. We're, we're in the city. He's speaking to the church or the churches in Ephesus. What do we know? What have we learned about Ephesus. One of the things we've learned is it's made this church, like many of the New Testament churches, are made up of Jews who have been converted to Christ and also Gentiles. And when we say Gentiles, when the Bible says Gentiles, it just simply means anybody who's not a Jew. So everybody else is made up of Jews and Gentiles. They didn't mix socially. If you took a Jew and a Gentile in that day, those two groups of people did not mix. Not religiously, not socially, not at all. It's interesting because the Jews were kind of the religious people of the day, but they didn't have power. Who had power? The Gentiles had power. The Romans had power. And so you had all kinds of distinctions between these groups of people, and yet they both groups of people have come to Christ. What does that look like? We talk about division in our world right now. That would have been division on steroids and distinction on steroids. I want to I, I try to put it in today's vernacular a little bit. Let's say you lived in New York City, and you were a part of, you ever heard of Tim Keller? Tim Keller's 
got a number, he's got a church, and they have plants out of that church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, downtown campus. And you've come to faith within the last few years as kind of the secular Gentile, non-Jew, okay? I mean, New York City is a, a mixing pot, right? As a non-Jew, you've come to faith. You live down in Brooklyn, across the river. You live down in Brooklyn, and you've noticed this group of people down in Brooklyn, the largest group of Hasidic Jews in the United States live in the Brooklyn area, Burroughs Park. Hasidic Jews are about as close as you're going to get to people alive today. There's not many of them that actually try to follow the Torah, the law of God in the Old Testament. If you ever want to study about this or look at this, go watch PBS's Frontline. And there's a, there's a documentary on Hasidic Jews. It's fascinating. They're Jews trying to live out the Torah in today's world. And let's just say those people from Redeemer Presbyterian Church go down and they start ministering and sharing the gospel with people, Hasidic Jews, and like 10 of them come to faith. And you got about 30 Gentiles from Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and they decide they're going to plant a church together. How do you think that's going to go at the first potluck? What do you think? That's going to be challenging. Well, we're not going to eat that. We're not going to eat pork. Well, God has made you free. And, and, and here's our social circle over here. That's a picture. It's not a perfect picture. It's not exactly apples. That's a picture, though, of the church in Ephesus. Gentile and Jew challenges with different cultural things, with different religious practices. That's what they're walking to. And so Paul points this out. Look at verse 11 and 12. He's specifically looking at the Gentiles. So he's saying, hey, remember Gentiles, non-Jews, there are three things that you were far off from. You were far off from Yahweh. You were, look at the words, verse 12, you were separated. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated big word, from Christ, from the people of God. Third thing, you were strangers to God's covenant promises. You know, in the Old Testament, God made promises to the nation Israel, to the people of God. These people had never heard about those things. They were separate. They were outsiders. They weren't insiders. They didn't have the privileges that the, many of the Jews had to at least know about their God, even though many of them in that day had rejected him. They were near, and the Gentiles were far. But look at this. So he's pointing to them. So imagine being in Ephesus as the church hearing this. You were far off. You were separated. You were alienated. You had no hope because of that. You had no hope, and you were without God in this world. You were an outsider. But... Verse 13, but now. You see that? Just flip back to the previous passage we are in last week. The structure is the same, if you notice. In chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, it says, hey, you are dead in your sins. You are disobedient. You are outside, but Christ. Beautiful verse 4. This text, you are alienated. You are a stranger. You are without hope, but now. Look at it. But now what? You're not in, 
far off anymore. You've brought near. Now you're an insider. You've come to know Christ. You're an insider. How did that happen? How did you become an insider? By the blood of Christ. You see it? You know God. Now you're an insider. See, that's the big reveal to the Jews, right? That God actually loves and cares for people beyond their ethnicity and those people, the Gentiles. It was talked about in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the mystery to come and revealed with Jesus, revealed in the New Testament, where they dusted off their feet and they went to the Gentiles, that God loves them too. Yeah, they're image bearers. Yeah, they can be made apart, grafted into the family of God. And to the Gentile, all they saw was grace, that God would save me, that God wants to know me, brought near, nearness. There's a nearness to God. You once were far off, and now there's a nearness. Look around. We are, most of us in this room, most of us in this room are Gentiles, non-Jews, and even if you are a Jew, guess what? You need the same thing that the Gentiles need. You were far off effectively to Christ, and he brought you near. You were far off. He's brought you to himself through his son. By the blood of the cross, it pushes into the imagery, doesn't it, of sacrifice, of sacrifice that you need that you can't make good with God on your own. Christ had to die as a sacrifice, as an atonement for your sins in your place. That's the beauty of of the gospel. Do you know that truth? That Christ has died in your place. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew. Doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter. He provides the way. Nearness. You think about nearness to people, nearness to God. A number of years ago, I just moved to Houston. I was a junior high youth pastor. Yep, that was me. Junior high youth pastor at a church down in Houston, and I'd been there for a few months getting to know families, getting to know kids, and this one of the guys in the church who had a kid in the junior high minister was like, hey, there's a one o'clock Astros game. You want to go with me? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Drove down Memorial to his office, Allen Parkway, drove in with him, and we're coming from west to east down Texas Avenue downtown. May not be the way you get there from here. We're going, and so Memor- uh, Minute Maid Park is on the left, and we're driving past it, and I've been to a few games, so I'm like, okay, we're going to go cross under 59, we're going to park and see your D parking over there. We don't do that. He comes up next to the stadium, and he hooks a left at the stadium, and we go into the parking lot, and I'm like, we park, and I'm like five feet from the stadium, I'm like, what in the world? I'm getting pretty stoked about that. I'm pretty excited about this. We go in this side door, valet going to side door, and we go down some steps, and there's this huge spread of food. And then I hear kind of what's going on up in the stadium, and there's a door, and we go up these stairs, and we're at home plate, y'all. We're in the Diamond Club. I'd never been anywhere near the Diamond Club. I'd take some students up to the nosebleeds. Best I could do at that point, maybe a club seat here or there. 
And we're at the Diamond Club at the Astros games, and we just keep walking. And we're in the center. We're not on the sides. We're in the center, and we just keep walking down. And I'm looking down, and I see George H. Bush sitting down there. And we're sitting right behind him. And you could hear the pitches come in and just the whizzing of the pitches. You could feel the pop from the batter. You could feel it hit the glove. And I'm thinking, man, I'm going to be on Sports Center tonight. My red Nike shirt because the frame is low enough. And I didn't even know we got done. I'm like, I never experienced that kind of closeness to a major league baseball game. That was awesome. About a month later, another guy at the church, a lot of Astros fans. Hey, you want to go to the game? Take my kids, whatever, youth group kids? Yeah. We get in our seats. I had to go park and see parking. I had a parking pass, but it was park and see parking. We come in. We got club seats, y'all. Great seats. But I was kind of disappointed because I wasn't as close. I wasn't as near. And they were great seats. See, I was an outsider, and I became an insider at least for a few hours. And I got to experience the nearness of being that close to an Astros game. Listen, God has come near. He has come near through the blood of His Son. And if you know Him you have a nearness to Him and a closeness to Him that you didn't ever have before. And it wasn't because you bought those tickets, those seats. It's because He brought you near. That's what we're meant to experience and understand. Sometimes we experience that and we feel that. Sometimes we don't. But that's the picture. See, Jesus has given you an all-access pass to know Him, to have a nearness to Him, and rightly applied in our lives, we seek Him. We draw near to Him. Psalm 145, 18, the psalmist says it this way, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him with truth. With truth is important. He's there. He's not moving. Hebrews chapter 10 for New Testament speaks about Jesus as the high priest and the blood of Christ, enabling what? It enables us to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that you can come to the throne. There's no dividing wall anymore. You can come directly to Him, not a priest, to Him. And then maybe you're here and you don't yet know Jesus. In the book of Acts, Paul says it this way about the Athenians, but he says it to us as well. He's speaking about interacting with people who don't know Jesus, and he says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope around and find Him because He is near. We have access. We've gone from being outsiders, if you know Jesus, to being insiders, that you may know Him personally, not just when you trusted Him, but today. You can do that in so many different ways. You can do that by prayer, as we were talking about earlier. You can do that by opening His Word to know Him and listen to Him. You can do that 
come on a Sunday morning and worship Him together with the body of Christ. If you know Him, you're an insider. God's renovating, right? He's restoring and He's doing that through the blood of Christ that outsiders maybe become insiders, that people that were far off could be brought near. Also, there's something more in this text, verse 14 through 18. Look at it with me. Here's your second thought. Not only that, the cross transforms us from former enemies to allies, not just with God, but with one another. And that's the stress here, with one another. In verse 14 through 18, we're allies in the church, in Jesus' church, we're made one. Look at the text in verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both, that's gent- in this text, it's Gentiles and Jews, okay? Made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between those races, effectively, between religious people and non-religious people, people of power, people without power, people with money, without people with money, because all that's wrapped up in this. It is ethnic, but it's more than that. It's religious, it's class, it's social, it's all of those things between Jews, especially Jews and Gentiles. But notice the language. He's abolished it. He's broken down this wall. What wall? That he might do what? He's broken down to build up, create. He's building for himself what? One new man. These people together, Jews and Gentiles, his church, in the place of those two, so making peace, that they might be reconciled, brought back together, both to God and one body through the cross. Again, it's the cross and killing the hostility. It's interesting when you look here and you understand some of the imagery of the dividing wall. I think what Paul has in mind is what's in Jerusalem or what was in Jerusalem in that day. See, in the temple, there were, was an outer court and an inner court. In the outer court, non-Jews, Gentiles could come into the outer court, people who had pros- been prophesied. I can't even say it. Help me out who had come to faith that weren't Jews, right? They could come into the outer court of the temple, but they could not come, Old Testament law, they could not come into the inner court where the Jews could come. And that created problems once Christ had saved people from their sins. Even so much, listen to to this, There's, there's been some findings. There was over the inner court, there were, think about this for a welcome sign at a church, okay? There was this sign that was over the inner court, and this sign was actually, they founded archaeological findings in 1871, like a legitimate example of this. It says this. Think about this if you came to church. No foreigner may enter within the barrier of this temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will only have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Welcome to church. But Paul's point is this, Christ's blood has broken down those walls between Israel and the people of God in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, and New, 
and Gentiles, it's broken down. Do you remember when Jesus was at the well and the lady who's not a full Jew, caught in sin, etc.? And Jesus says, one soon you will be able to worship me in spirit and truth. Not just in Jerusalem, she's like, I can't go there, but from anywhere. And when Jesus died, the veil was what? The veil, the curtain was torn, giving access and nearness to anyone who calls upon the name of Christ. Jew, Gentile, Aggie, Longhorn, Magnolia, Woodlands, homeschool, non-homeschool. Keep going, right? The ways that we divide ourselves. King James, not King James. I'm keep going. I'm not King James. One new man. He's taken these two different people, and he's made them allies. They're not enemies anymore. That's what the culture around them tells them. Y'all are enemies because you look a certain way. You look different than you. You're in this class, and you're in this class, and you have this much power, and you have this much power. See, also our world looks a little different. Same deal. You're allies. If you know Christ, you're allies. You're not enemies. One new man. There's peace not only with God. Now you're not enemies with God, but you're allies with God and each other. You ought to be. Remember Peter and Paul, their problem? Peter had been given charge, right? In the book of Acts, he had been given charge to continue to stay on mission with Jews as a Jew. What about Paul? Remember? Acts 9, Jesus had given him the charge to go to the Gentile world. So these two guys were on parallel tracks. They're on the same mission. They were just trying to reach different people. But you see, at a certain place, Peter's Jewishness goes a little bit too far. He won't eat with Gentiles who had become believers in Jesus. He would only eat with believing Jews. He would also wasn't going to eat with them. One of the reasons is because they were eating stuff that, you know, his cultural heritage said, no, I can't eat that anymore. Even though God had given them meat to eat, pork to eat. And so he chose effectively Peter to break fellowship with fellow believers who were Gentiles who didn't share the same things to eat. And so you get to later in Acts, especially in the book of Galatians, and Paul talks about it. These guys are brothers in Christ. But the text says that Paul confronted Peter to his face. Why? Because, hear the words, he was out of step with the gospel, the good news of Christ that made outsiders insiders, that made enemies allies. And he corrected Peter. And Peter looks like took the correction that he absolutely needed. So it wasn't just the people in the church, it was the pastors, okay? It was the people in leadership that needed correction as well. And at the end of that passage in Galatians 3, Paul says this to sum up his argument and that no, you're justified by faith alone, not works, not what you eat, not ceremonies, not ordinances. And he says this, it's like a summary statement of, of his description in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew, I think we have it, Jew nor Greek. 
What he's not saying is that a person isn't ethnically a Jew or a Greek person. It's not what he's saying. Those distinctions are there. Neither slave nor free. Those are real things. Neither male nor female. Look, in our culture, we got to be careful interpreting this text. Everybody's the same. we got to work towards sameness. No, there are males and there are females. That's not what he's saying. But look at it. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. You're together. We're not making distinctions based on those things. Somebody said it this way, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There aren't tears. The Jew isn't higher than the Gentile. The male isn't higher than the female or female higher than the male. The class that you are in, no, it's all level at the foot of the cross. That's the beauty of the gospel. And wow, lots of application to this in our world, isn't there? You ever, you ever seen the neighbors who are getting a fight over something? And what do they do at the end of the fight? Somebody's building a fence. You ever seen that? You don't even have to know the people to know when you drive by. Somebody builds like Trump's wall, like 20 foot high, so you don't have to see the other person. And if the HOA will let me because I'm mad at my neighbor, I'm going to build that fence all the way to the road. I don't want to see you. I'm building a fence. Here's the reality. We are natural Left to ourselves and our brokenness, we are natural fence builders with people, aren't we? If we're just honest, we often are fence builders with things, whether it is the way we think politically, whether it's the way we think about school, whether it's the way we think about different issues, even in the church, Calvinism, our men, we're fence builders more than we are bridge builders. That's our natural bent, is it not? We're good at it. We naturally gravitate to it. And what we think about those fences is this. I'm better. I'm more holy. My fence is better than yours. Man. And here's the other one in our world. Sometimes we build fences that we don't need to build. We need to think about if we need to build fences or not. But in our world, the world outside of us builds all kinds of fences, all kinds of divisions And what we need to ask oftentimes, and at least a filter to ask is, is that a real fence that needs to be built, or is it not? Because there's tons of fences out there in the world. I don't care if it's race. I don't care if it's gender. There's all kinds of fences that are built, and we need to filter, are those real? Or we just need to rant and rave about something in the world that we live in. I was talking with a a guy who's older in ministry, and he's been in ministry for over 40 years, full-time ministry, 40 years, been a lead pastor most of that time, this time. And about a year ago, I asked him, in the evangelical church, I asked him, have you ever seen a time in the evangelical church, just in America, as much division, as much division over mask, as much division over race, as much division over male, female, Roles in the church, roles in home. Have you ever seen it inside the church this much? No. Maybe if I, I got a guy who'd been through the 60s, maybe, you know, and been in ministry for that long, he could probably, or she could probably talk to me about that. 
But the air we breathe, know this on social media, know this on the news, what gets clicks is outrage. That algorithm that is fed to your feed is feeding you more of whatever it is you're clicking. And, and too often we can get caught up in that with other believers in Jesus. And I'm not saying don't have your take. Have your take. But understand, Paul's solution to these distinctions really wasn't ranting and raving. It was the gospel. It was the blood of the cross. We need to think deeply about how we respond to other believers. I remember in the middle of COVID, when George Floyd calling and having interaction with a really good friend of mine, who's a black pastor, and asking him questions. And what, some, some of what he said, I kind of wanted to do this. Like, no, no, no. And it was like God was saying, you need to listen. You may not agree with this. You need to listen and hear his heart. You need to sympathize and empathize. Listen, your position is not more important than the unity of the gospel in a church. Now, if you want to divide, you divide over that, okay? If we're going to divide, we're going to have the gospel in the center. And I would tell you as a church what we're into and what we're not into. And maybe you, you sense that and you feel that. We are into building bridges. I'm not going to rant at you about things that are outside of our body or community. I'm going to speak, and we're going to speak oftentimes into things from a, hopefully a biblical perspective. But I've watched churches in the middle of COVID and George Floyd where they hadn't been back to church together for almost a year down in Houston. And the first sermon back was just a rant at, ranting at people. Subjectively, that's not how you build unity in a church. You also don't build unity in a church and not talking about it at all. I mean, this is part of this text. The application of this text is, is very much ethnic and, and racial between Jews and Gentiles. And so we have to engage it. But we also don't need to make it the only card that we're carrying. There are gospel implications to issues of our day, but we need not get off track on lesser things than the truth of the gospel in our church. But here's the reality, is that while it may not be in our face as much, like racial division, like political division, I'm going here, everybody's quiet right now. While it may not be in our face, there are other little fences that we build, aren't there, that are probably more realistic from day to day. And I want to say this, what I'm not saying is, hey, let me tell you who should be friends with in the church. You're going to naturally, you are going to naturally gravitate toward people in your church and in your community that are like you. Friendship, I'm not talking about that. What's going on here is the potential breaking of fellowship. That we don't break fellowship over things like, and I'm joking, Aggies, Longhorns, uh, silly things. But it's also silly to break fellowship with people over, well, anybody who's not going to public school or private school or homeschool, they're out for me. Really? 
And you can fill in the blanks. Lesser things. What if somebody doesn't cross their T's and dot their I's exactly like you do with politics? Listen, that may rub you wrong. It rubs me wrong. But are you going to break fellowship and relationship and closeness to somebody that God has put in your church because of that? I hope not. I will say this about C3 Magnolia. As I talk to the broader community and pastors that have gone through all kinds of stuff with mask, with race, with all kinds of issues in the last three years, I have not seen that here. And that's a beautiful thing. I have seen unity and diversity here. And that's how God builds his church. You notice? Unity amidst diversity. Moving on. See, God's restoration process through the cross, it breaks down. You think about a a, a renewal project or restoration project, you think about building, don't you? But sometimes restoration takes some demo. And so what Paul is saying here, we we have to break some things down to build something up. So keep looking at this text, and we'll finish with this last point. The third point in verse 19 through 22 is this. This is something new that God builds. See, the cross gives us a new identity and a new community. That's what the church is. You have a new identity. It's part of who you are and a new community that looks distinct, maybe. What is this new identity? Look at the metaphors here. Household of God, temple, dwelling place. That's the church. It's a household. It's a temple. It's a dwelling place for the Spirit in verse 19 through 22. If you think about Ephesus again just for a minute, as these people are reading these words, they're likely not only thinking about what Paul's saying to them as it relates to the church, they're also likely thinking about the shadow of the temple of Diana where they worship the god Artemis. It was like the seventh wonder, one of the seven wonders of the world in the ancient world, and it informed everything in people's lives in the city of Ephesus. If you go back to Acts 18, that's what you see. And so when you come to this idea that the church is a household, think about a household. There's a family unit, loved, cared for, protected. There's also responsibility in a household too. There's an identity. You are a Thornton. You are a Stanfield. You are a Lingle, et cetera, et cetera. There's identity wrapped up into a household in a family. There's responsibility. There's care. There's a community. Think about your own family. That's the way the family of God is too. And then you look at this idea of temple. What does a temple do? It brings glory to whatever God it's serving so that people see this is the temple of XYZ. And in Ephesus, that was the temple of Diana who worshiped the god Artemis. And Paul's saying here, no, we are a temple. And we give glory to God, Yahweh. And guess who is the stone, the cornerstone of it all. Christ. 
And that day, the cornerstone of a building, if you are a builder, if you're in construction, that cornerstone would be a larger stone on the, on the corner of a building, and it set all the other stones. And so they would take other smaller stones, and they would build from there. And that cornerstone really held the building together. You think about architecture now and construction now, it'd probably be like the beam in a home. But they built everything off of the cornerstone. And this text reminds us that Jesus is that cornerstone in whom, look at it, the whole structure is joined together and it grows into a holy temple. In him you are also being built together, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, the church is not a building or a gym. The church is God's dwelling place. So when you come to know Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells within you. 1 Peter chapter 2 gives us a bigger picture. I'm not going to go there today, but it gives us this picture. And it says that you and I are the living stones. There's the cornerstone, and we are all the living stones. One of the things these metaphors all have in common is there is like the body of Christ. When we talk about the body of Christ, there are multiple players in all these things in a temple, in a household, in the body of Christ. A cornerstone has living stones around it when you build something. And so that's the picture that we have. It's interesting, when you think about church, what do you think about? Do you think about your community? Do you think about this church being the household, the family of God? It's interesting because one of the challenges we have is to live out our identity as part of the church. And you know how best to do that? In community. To be reminded of the family that you are in. To be encouraged. To be challenged. So do you think about the church, our church, as the household, as a family, as the temple where we bring glory and display the glory of God you think about Jesus as the cornerstone? Do you think about it as a household? Or do you think about church functionally as a hotel? So you've got a home, right? You, you, you stay there, and then you go on a trip, and you go either to a hotel or you go to the Airbnb. And what do you do when you do that? You go pick it out. Where is it? What amenities does it have? I'm going to show up. Are you staying long term? You're, you're not committed to this thing. You pay money, and you go and stay. You enjoy it. But some of the things that you wouldn't do is you wouldn't invest time in it. You also probably wouldn't clean it up too much when you leave because somebody else is, you've paid for somebody else to do it, right? And you're probably not going to go, you know what? I think it would look really great over here um, if we hung a different picture. And so I'm going to go buy a new picture for this room. Or They don't have this, so I'm going to go buy it. Would you ever do that in a hotel or an Airbnb? No. But you would for your own home. Sometimes we get in this place where we treat the church like we're just showing up to the hotel. We might throw a little money in the plate, and we get something out of it, and we leave, and we go on our way. Now, the church, Jesus is building his church, you and me, into a household. So we invest there. So we commit there. So we care for people there. So we serve there. So we give there. So that God's glory is displayed 
in his temple, the church. So, so far, God's renovation project, it builds his church stone by stone. You know, I showed you the home that, the first home that we bought, and I showed you some pictures. I want to show you a few more. You good with that? So that's during. You know that picture you saw? So we ripped out some of the cabinetry. I mean, look at that. There was a moment where I'm like, what did I just do? I'm not sure I can come back from this. During, all right, 15 years later before we sell it, you know, get the pretty pictures. Looks a little different. Renovation, work. Got rid of the Kelvinator. Look at that. That picture, it was a Thursday night. It's 2 a.m. We're still in our apartment. And I got a youth, I got a youth retreat that weekend. And I leave at 2 a.m. with my house looking like that. I'm like, seriously, I'm an idiot. How are we going to redo this? We pulled out, we were so dumb, y'all. Like paneling, they had painted it. And we're like, we're going to get rid of that and put sheetrock. And they're like, that's a lot of work. No, we're good. We're excited about it. That was brutal. 15, a few minutes later. Renovation. Reclamation. Being made new. See, this is what God does with us in our lives, is it not? He purchases the house. He purchases us with the blood of his son. He makes us new. He makes us alive. And he comes and resides through his spirit in the house. And he takes on the hard work of renovation in our lives, conforming us more and more to the image of his son. He fixes us up, and he asks us and invites us to welcome others into his home. The point is this. God is making all things new. He's brought you from death, if you know his son, to life He's taken that toss paint and broken up canvas, and he's created this workmanship, this work of art. He's made outsiders into insiders. He's drawn us near. He makes enemies allies with himself and with other people that might not look or act just like you. And last, he's given you a new identity. You're not an alien or a stranger or a sojourner. You are a citizen in his household. And he's made you a part of something bigger than yourself. He's made you a part of the one new man. He's made you a part of the household, the temple of God, with Jesus, his son, as the cornerstone that holds it all together. He makes all things new. Let me pray.